Hi, I'm Talissa. And I'm Rachel, and this is Transatlantic Crime, a true crime podcast that covers stories from each side of the pond. Every week, we will both cover a separate story with a running theme. Disclaimer, this podcast will contain swearing and details that some people may find offensive. If you are of a sensitive disposition, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Transatlantic Crime. What are you eating? Um, it's a pan of chocolate. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice it, Sunday breakfast. I say nice. It's like out of a packet and like it would survive a nuclear. <laughs> it would survive a nuclear explosion. Like They never go off. But they're pretty good. They're pretty good for like an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> which this is. <laughs> like today. Like today. Let's be honest. So yeah. How was your are night? You- Oh man, <laughs> last night. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I went to a bar for the first time in over a year. Yeah. So needless to say, I was feeling rough for most of today, Yeah. which is why I am recording at midnight and it's 8 a.m. for you rather than <laughs> me normally recording at 8 a.m. and it's the end of the day for you. Yeah. Look, needs must. We're doing what we can. <laughs> we're trying our best oh really are sorry my, like my face just looks like a potato with glasses on it like i'm just so sorry <laughs> but it is what it's, it is it's fine yeah uh, okay if you saw me earlier then then um yeah we'll just leave it at that <laughs> i just love that your message was like i'm a mess <laughs> no <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do this right now. I can't, it can't be done. I was like, fair <laughs> enough, mate. We've all been there. Yeah. Were you just were you just like scrabbling around to prepare stuff and you just went, no. <laughs> no, I don't think I, so. Yes. <laughs> I opened my laptop and I I think I stared at it for a good ten minutes trying to just <laughs> get my head in order. Yeah. You know, trying to focus. <laughs> I was probably still drunk. Yeah, but might have been it. That's uh, <laughs> that's where I was at. Any time that happens, it really reminds me of The Simpsons, where they're making Mr. Burns is making a casino, and that hippie comes in, and he's like, "Yeah, uh, go." And Mr. Burns is like, "Get out!" And he's like, "Just, oh, just let me get my head together." <laughs> he goes, "Get out!" <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh. Uh, Talissa, you would really like uh, my new co-workers. They are quoting The Simpsons all the time. Yes, please. It's great. Very much so. I would like that. Um, I think I yeah. saw like, I think I saw on Will's Instagram that, that you were playing darts. They're darts at the pub. Oh, no. Will wasn't there. Oh. <laughs> Where was he? But yeah. With Kevin. He was at Uncle Kev's. Yeah. Uh, and they just were hanging out at his his apartment where they were playing darts. He's got a dartboard now. Yeah, I think one of the guys threw the dart into the dart. What? That's amazing. Not only the accuracy, but the force it would take. (laughs) And if everyone's drunk, that too. What are the chances? I think, yeah, that was what made me laugh in that story was Kevin was like, what 
Oh, kids. <laughs> yeah. Kids these days. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you, you got any drunken stories to tell us? Send them in. Yeah. Oh, God, please do. And also, of course, sliding into our DMs drunk. We're very much into that as well. We get a bit of that. Yes. How was your week watching England play and win? And Oh, it's coming home, Rachel. <laughs> oh, no. I can't stop seeing that phrase everywhere. <laughs> oh, God. Right. So... We haven't, yeah, we haven't been in the finals since of a European, I think, no, wait, is it European final or is it like any final? I don't know. But anyway, definitely the European one. We haven't haven't been in the final of that since 1966. Yeah. Our prime minister has literally said if we win, we can have a day off. (laughs) Honestly, that's true. (laughs) That's how seriously you guys take it. And I love it. This is such a big deal. So yeah, and then basically tonight is the final. Yeah. I don't even care about football, but like I would watch England, I would watch England play tiddlywinks and I am so excited. <laughs> I actually feel a bit nervous. Like Yeah. Unless like yeah, I just want us to win. I just want us to fucking win. <laughs> it's such a good atmosphere though, like just sitting there with everyone and everyone's so excited. Oh, we are. And like last time they um so we beat who did we beat again? The Danish in um the last match and like afterwards on instagram and stuff there were scenes of people just going fucking mental in the streets yes like it it was like a riot like it was just silly people were like video of a guy like climbing a lamppost like jimmying himself up a lamppost and waving an england flag and everyone going way and then he just came down like it was just silly (laughs) So if we win tonight, I love it. fuck knows what's going to happen. It's going to be like the last days of oh Rome. My gosh. <laughs> There's going to be like fireworks shooting off in people's homes uh, and people throwing tea into the ocean. <laughs> I can't imagine what's going to happen. I really can't. Yeah. Um. So yeah, fingers crossed. And if we lose, it'll be so sad. I mean, you've gotten this far. That's true. Which I've, is great. Like last time, Carly was going... Well, we might not win. And I was like, Carly, I don't want to hear that kind of negative talk in my house. (laughs) I was like, shut Shut up. I was like, shut your (laughs) filthy traitor mouth. (laughs) So I don't want to hear any of that that shit tonight. Um, So, yeah, very exciting. Gotta stay positive. Yeah. Oh, God, if we won. I just, I'm like, oh, God, I can't. It's like my kid is like in a play. I don't know. I'm just so excited. (laughs) It's yeah. like Christmas. It kind of is. Like, yeah. A lot hangs on this. A lot of like national morale hangs yeah. on it. You guys need something. Oh my God, we you really need, need it. Really do. <laughs> so yeah, that's happening tonight at eight o'clock. So everybody. Sweet. Well, by the time this yeah. comes out, we'll know. You will. The result will have been. Will Will Talissa be hungover and have the day off or will she be hungover <laughs> and at work? I'm not drinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not drinking tonight. I drank. I drank like last night. Yeah. Yeah. Went to the pub. Uh, only had like I'd like four ciders, but that was quite enough. I'm 32 now, yeah. so obviously, as I've said before, I need to be hospitalised after about <laughs> five drinks. So <laughs> there will be no drinking yep. tonight. That was me today. So yeah. yeah. But you made it through. Um, you pulled through. <laughs> 
I'm here now. <laughs> Rachel's here out of day. intensive care. <laughs> <laughs> what bar did you go to and with who? If Will wasn't there. Uh, I just went with some co-workers, new yeah. co-workers, which is, it's just nice to do that. Go for yeah. lunch drinks. I haven't yeah. done that in like 50 years. I know, right? It's been 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Was it? Uh, but we went to a, a tiki bar. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. And I had a lot of Mai Tais. What is in a Mai Tai? Is it rum? Pineapple, rum, and I think coconut oh, or something. And a cherry. Sounds... My favorite. That sounds fun. <laughs> Obviously not so fun today. Uh, but no, yeah, it, fun but at the time. It, yeah. It was fun. Cool. Um, yeah, when you're here, we'll go. Yes, I'd love that. And I'm coming in November, so... Yay! This we is have... the official announcement. Oh, yeah, sorry, slipped that in. But, yeah, we have to <laughs> fucking pray that, like, nothing goes horribly wrong between now and then, and it all kind of slowly plods along, and I can just come to America with no issues. Listen, if you haven't been vaccinated yet, Get vaccinated so that Talissa can come to LA. If for no other reason, just that. <laughs> then that. Yeah. That is your inspiration. That's the last push that you need. I need you to be Bring vaccinated. Bring Talissa home. <laughs> <laughs> Bring little Talissa back to the promised land. <laughs> yes. Yes. I really fucking hope that nothing good. I mean, after this weekend, there's going to be a huge spike in coronavirus because... I'll tell you this, football fans that are excited do nope. not yeah. stay two metres apart and they do not wear masks. <laughs> They're basic, they might as well be gobbing in each other's mouths with how excited they are. Right. Like, <laughs> so that's not going to help. But, you know, no. it's, hard, it's, hard to, it's hard to dampen that fun um, yeah. when, you, when yeah. you see it happening. I get it. Right, so any true crime news? Um, no, I don't have any true crime news. Um... <laughs> I feel like you're just like, you're like, no, I'm coming clean. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do, but I I don't. Like, there's there's been a couple of documentaries that have come out about, like, more Jeffrey Epstein uh, documentaries. Yeah. So if you have Hulu, or no, it's on Peacock TV. That's why I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, it's somebody... On Peacock TV. Yeah, a, a, girl, a fan of the show, Gina... Message saying, "Oh, mm. I just watched this really good show hi, on Pe Gina. on Pe yeah hi on Peacock." I was like, "What the fuck is Peacock?" <laughs> Talissa, <laughs> there's strange so many name services now. Yeah, it's, Peacock is the is NBC. Uh, that's their like, oh yeah their logo. logo. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so that's their new streaming service. But anyways, the documentary is on there, and uh, I haven't watched it yet because. I don't want to buy another goddamn streaming service. Can't you just do that thing where you get the free trial and then like power through as much as you can? I should do that. That is yeah. what, that's what I do if I don't want to do another yeah. streaming service. So I've got Discovery ID, which is another streaming mm. service. And like, I love it. I don't want to get rid of it. It's got such good stuff on it. It's <laughs> that's got, how they get you. I know, right? But it's got on it a program called Too Large, which is about people who are like 400 to 600 pounds. And then they go on a weight loss <laughs> journey. And they, Oh my God, it's Aww. such good TV. And then they... um. They get their like gastric band and the guy on it, I can't remember, is Dr. Proctor, he's called, and he is hot. So, like, 
<laughs> not only do you get the good entertainment of someone on their weight loss journey, you also get spicy doctor to like guide nice. them. Yeah. Yes. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's just brilliant. And then there's another one called um, uh, the murder tapes. And okay, I, yeah, I, I yeah. really like. Have you seen that? I haven't, no, but I, I I, mean, I know what it is. I like it because it's made up basically of like pure uh, body cam footage and interview footage. Um, and there's like no reenactments because yeah. I fucking hate reenactment. Like I'll, I'll like, yeah. I'll, I'll bear a reenactment, but they just, anno- they just annoy me. So like, yeah. Yeah, this is pure, this is pure like real life footage, which is really good. And there's like four series of that. And then um, I think we should talk about it next week. But I watched a Robert Durst program. Like, you know, the guy mm. from The Jinx. Yeah, the weirdo. Yeah, the fucking scariest old golem looking man in the world. He <laughs> yes. He's petrifying. He I is. was watching that and there's so much stuff on there that I didn't, that they didn't include in The Jinx. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is why I think we should discuss it in a, like a future episode because... I was Definitely. like, oh my God. Like, you know, when you, I do this with the Scott Peterson case, like Scott and Lacey Peterson. Yeah. Like, I yeah. just mm-hmm. want to know everything, like more details. Yeah. I want to like have the police case files in my hands. And yeah, whenever I find out new facts about a case that I didn't know before when the case is huge, it's like the best thing. So yeah. Yeah. Revelations. Revelations. <laughs> really good oh well we'll definitely talk about that i think maybe we'll we'll, yeah we're gonna do a special episode next week yeah we just talk about stuff that we want to talk about yeah true crime chat basically yes yes exactly so it's midnight and three things that i was gonna say oh all of what it within what you were talking about and now i just can't remember oh fuck i'm so sorry hungover (laughs) i was just about to say like i thought you were gonna go right let's get on with this because it's midnight (laughs) like that's what i thought you were gonna say (laughs) no i'm a night person anyway so i i really don't mind staying up oh okay cool well that's quite handy because i'm a morning person and not a night person maybe we should do this more often oh i don't know about that (laughs) sunday (laughs) maybe on a saturday i don't know then it would be my friday night yeah. So it could work. It could. Um, okay. I went first last week. So it's you. Okay. All right. So this week, this, since you were talking about like Scott Peterson and the jinx and going down those holes, this theme this week is what I go down holes for, which <laughs> is cults. Yes. <laughs> and this week, I really wanted to talk about this one cult, but there was just not enough information on it. And it's called the Helios Cult. Um, and it was f- started by a woman in LA. LA has so many cults started. Exactly. Here. You are just spoiled for choice. Like, this is so unfair. I know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll do like a, when you come here, we'll do a little episode on and go to all the different spots of cults. <gasps> That's so exciting. Yeah. But the Helios Cult was started by a woman in the 30s. And cool. she said that she was in control of a thousand men and she was trying to like abolish marriage and (laughs) 
create communism and she got arrested so you, you go uh, admire that i really want you to do it on that <laughs> yeah but that's basically the gist of it and she lived like not too far from where i live and she just started this commune with tents and shacks in the park in the 30s okay so, sounds like fun yeah it does but yeah that was basically the gist of that story and i just wanted to get that in there because I just thought it was really interesting and can't talk about it anymore because there's not that much more. Well, we'll have a little, um, um, about her, have a little Google of that if it's inter- if you're interested and I'm pretty interested. Yeah. 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 All right. So my story this week is following the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints again. Mm-hmm. I know last time I, I what's think- your beef with the Mormons? <laughs> It's polygamy, man. Like, <laughs> sends people crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's such a like patriar- patriarchal invention. Bullshit controlling women. Also, where thing. is like, where are the fucking women with five husbands that like yeah, cook exactly. and clean their house and just like go down yeah. on them in like rotation? Like, where is, <laughs> where is this? <laughs> Building them an amazing house. Like yeah. each man builds a wing of a house. Yeah. Where's that? Let's start that cult. And then come to service me and then get out of my bedroom. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is a branch a branch that went off of the Latter-day Saints. So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter- Latter-day Saints was founded by Joseph Smith in 1860 in the U.S., One of the many practices of the church at the time was polygamy, with most of the men in the church taking multiple wives. One of Joseph Smith's most trusted followers was Benjamin F. Johnson, who followed the practice and took several wives. When polygamy was renounced by the church 30 years later, Benjamin Johnson, Johnson, obviously I can't read today either. (laughs) Uh, Just call him Benjo. (laughs) Ben, Ben Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Johnson. <laughs> We've got I just our picture um, Johnson from Peep Show. <laughs> Johnson. Um our uh our Prime Minister is called Boris Johnson and we call him Bojo. <laughs> like everyone's like, What's I Bojo know saying that. today? That's great. <laughs> he does look like a Bojo as well. <laughs> yeah. Like when it was uh when it was lockdown, he like peak lockdown, he would come on TV like every couple of weeks at like 6 p.m yeah. to tell you what you had to do next and everyone was like fucking hell what does bojo want this week our oh. firstborn like <laughs> <laughs> that's true yeah twitter was great for that <laughs> yeah so benjamin johnson and several other mormon fundamentalists did not agree with this with the abolishment of polygamy mm-hmm. and and they insisted on continuing it So in 1924, after the government started to take a closer interest in the legality of polygamy and the Mormon fundamentalists were excommunicated from the church for continuing the practice, one of Johnson's grandchildren, Alma Dayer LeBaron Sr., moved his family to Mexico. So Johnson took his family, they branched off, and then Johnson's grandkid, uh, Alma, who was a full-grown man, Mm. moved to Mexico, where the government was lax in the practice of polygamy. Okay. Uh, So they didn't mind, basically. No, they didn't care. Yeah. Uh, They got bigger fish to fry. I think at that time, (laughs) right. I think at that time, Mexico, too, was like, 
it was sort of still the Wild West. There was still like yeah. you could get away with so much down there. Mm-hmm. So the LeBaron family settled in Chihuahua in northern Mexico. Aww. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> Aww, just Chihuahuas everywhere. Oh, I want a Chihuahua to be the mayor of the town. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. I can totally see your dog being a mayor. Yeah. Mayor Arlo. <laughs> He is a harsh but fair leader. <laughs> he's got a little tie on. Aww. <laughs> oh, he's okay, so, cute. so Al- Alma LeBaron and his wife, Maude, had 13 children, five girls and seven boys. Uh, he also had another wife named Oni, and they had six children together. Fuck me. She eventually left him. I know. That's almost 20 kids. What are, are you, you feeding them? <laughs> How do you keep track? Yeah, so but she eventually left him after she got sick of the fundament fundamentalist lifestyle and she took some of her children with her oh. uh back to the US. So all seven of Alma's sons at one point or another in their lives believed themselves to be part of Joseph Smith's one mighty strong prophecy, which claimed that God will send in quotes one mighty and strong holding the scepter of power in his hand, clothed with light for a covering, whose mouth shall utter words, eternal words, while his bowels shall be a fountain of truth to set in the order the house of God and to arrange by the lot of inheritance of the saints whose names are found and the name of their fathers and of their children enrolled in the book of the law of God, while that man who is called of God and appointed... So they're shitting uh, truth. <laughs> Is yeah. that what he's trying to say? <laughs> yeah. That putteth forth his hand to steady the ark of God shall fall by the vivid shaft of lightning. So basically, he's saying that a prophet will come and this person will have the truth for everything. Yeah, you know, I. it's not like I don't believe him, but they always say stuff like this, don't they? There's always somebody coming. Yeah. <laughs> they never <Right>. arrive. <laughs> <There's-> <laughs> Um, but Joseph Smith never publicly revealed who that person would be. That's handy. Um, but the LeBaron brothers all thought that at one point in their lives that they were that person. Yeah. So they thought they were but the it can't be all of you. patriarch of all the world. <laughs> not, not all of them, just one. Um, so when Alma died in 1951, he appointed his son Joel to lead the family and the Chihuahua community. Joel would eventually incorporate the community as the Church of the Firstborn of the Fullness of Times in Salt Lake City, Utah. Joel's younger brother, Ervil LeBaron, remember his name, that is who we will be talking about. Oh, um, he was his second in command during the early years of the church's existence. The group ultimately numbered around 30 families who lived in both Utah and a community called Los Molinos on the Baja California Peninsula. So, by the late 1960s, Ervil LeBaron began preaching against his brother. This is very similar to the last cult yeah. that I did. It's like brothers preaching against each other. Ugh. Um. So he accused his brother of crimes against their faith, proclaiming that he was the true successor to his father. Ervil began the Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God 
and named himself the president. <laughs> Did I ever tell you about uh, when we took our car to get serviced a couple years ago? No. And, and this guy, um, this uh, like old man, it, he was the only person there and he f fixed the car, I guess. And he was like, come ask for me when, when you come back. Mm -hmm. And Will was like, "Okay, who are you?" <laughs> and he gave him the he gave him this card, and it said like, "Auto, whatever, Tim, whatever, the president." So <laughs> now every time every time we uh, have to get our car fixed, we say, "Oh, we have to take it to the president because <laughs> this card said the president, President Tim." <laughs> yeah. Only in America, so, Herbal, Rachel. Yeah. You can name yourself the president if you want to. Mental. Um, but yeah, Ervil began the church of the firstborn and he appointed himself the president. Ervil had, by that point, married 13 different wives, some of them underage, mm. and he had had over 50 children. Oh my Christ. Yeah. Uh, he does not know the their brothers, names. No doesn't know any, like <laughs> no. i would bet sure my left tit he can't the name same them names they yeah. must have one's john one's john two one's john three <laughs> that is so stupid yeah a kid would come up to you and you'd be like hey kid well. are you mine <laughs> <laughs> who are you <laughs> yeah they'd be like dad and you'd be like sure <laughs> yeah so the the two brothers were also divided over the land that they owned in Baja, where Joel wanted to use it as a place to support future church recruits, while Ervil wanted to develop the land into a resort. It was all about the money. Mm. By 1967, tensions were rising between Joel and Ervil. Ervil began advocating for the return of a Mormon philosophy known as blood atonement. This required that a sinner must have their blood shed in order for them to have a place in heaven, which basically meant that anything that Ervil deemed a sin would be a cause for the death penalty. Uh, obviously, Joel was like, I don't agree with that, and that's stupid. Right, so. he's quickly slipping into like maniac territory here. Yes, mm. with his 13 wives and 50 children. Yeah. He has time to plot blood atonement. Or he's thinking, I need to um, I need to say some of these kids have sinned so I can kill some off. <laughs> oh, probably. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. So, obviously, this caused the brothers to split in 1972, and Ervil began plotting his first blood atonement act, an act that he claimed came to him from heavily, heavenly visions. His first victim was his brother, Joel. Okay. Obviously. So, in the split, Ervil had brought with him several families and followers. These followers were convinced of Ervil's visions and obeyed his wish to have his brother killed. So, on August 20th, 1972, two of Ervil's followers confronted Joel, beat him, and then they shot him to death. So, he didn't even do it himself? Nope. He convinced a couple other guys to do it. Ugh. Ervil was charged and convicted of Joel's murder in a Mexican court. While awaiting trial in prison, Ervil continued to release pamphlets and books insisting that he was the Mormon one mighty and strong. 
and that as God's representative on earth, he could decide who should die for their sins. So he was still like contacting people while in prison. Yeah. Saying like, okay, this is the next person who should die. Oh my God. Uh, however, an appeals court reversed the conviction and <gasps> Ervil was released from prison as he was not the actual murderer. And some have also alleged that he was released as a result of a bribe. Well, buddy, it didn't work for Charles Manson. It shouldn't work for you. <laughs> it worked for him for a while. Yeah. Uh, the actual killers, Daniel Ben Jordan, an avid follower of Ervil's, was later arrested for the murder, but he was also released when witnesses were too afraid to testify against him. And then the other killer, uh, a follower, I'm going to butcher this name, <laughs> Hamaliel Rios, he also remained free. So nobody was convicted for Joel's murder. Wow. In the end. That's yeah. mad. Also Mexico. Yeah. I don't know. If you're going to murder someone, go to Mexico. Back then. They are busy. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Ervil expected to gain followers after this, thinking that Joel's community would come to him now that Joel was dead. But, in fact, Joel's followers advocated for Ervil's arrest. This began a chain of blood atonement set by Ervil over the next decade. He was pissed that they wanted him arrested. Like, does he think he lives in, like, Tudor England, where if you kill someone, then you're <laughs> the new king? Yeah, or, like... The Italian mob, like, yeah, like, I don't know. Those people aren't going to go, oh, I'm so lost. Who else can I look to for leadership? Oh, you'll right. do. <laughs> Guy that murders people at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah, the next brother, I guess. I guess we'll turn to him. That's just how arrogant he is. He's like, I'll kill them and then they'll love me. <laughs> right. So, Ervil and his wives and children went on the run around Mexico. They stayed in safe houses as Ervil plotted the blood atonements. Um, also, how did they, uh, if you're wondering how they made money for their 50 children and I am wondering wives. <laughs> uh, the children were used as unpaid labor in the domestic appliance repair shops. And that was the cult's main source of income. So oh. they were just using child labor. Well, no wonder they had so many kids. Yeah, and there's a really good BBC interview with a woman who was one of the daughters, and she said, like, I had to work. I was 10 years old, and they made me work, and, uh, like, all my siblings had to work, and you would get beaten if you didn't do your job or if you had an attitude or um so it was just miserable that's similar in loads of cults isn't it right in children of god like cult they had to do yes. all the children had to work and if they didn't they got beaten um and even in like scientology right. they yeah. they get the kids like even from like 10 years old to be like cleaning the older kids right. stuff yeah they all have chores like but when but chores that last all day like yeah it, well, in this case, they're actually making them make money for them. Yeah. So, it sucks. They were forced to scrub grease and grime from rusty ovens and refrigerators for 12 hours a day during school holidays. Oh. Uh, they were also told to not, when they went, they, they were allowed to go to school, but they weren't allowed to speak about what happens at home while yeah. they were at school. So. Ervil focused on his next brother, Verlin, who Joel's followers had elected to lead them after Joel's death. 
Verlin had at this point also gone into hiding, learning that Ervil's visions had put him on the chopping block, basically. Mm-hmm. So on December 26, 1974, Ervil's underage 13th wife, Rena Chenoweth, and her brothers Mark and Dwayne raided Los Molinos, where they thought Verlin and his family were residing. They threw firebombs at houses and shot at residents, killing two young men and injuring 13 others. What? Yeah. So, sorry, just, just to, sorry to interrupt, but um, how old is underage and how old is this guy? Uh, so he was born in 1925 hmm. and this is 1974, so he's He's around 50. Yeah, 49. Um, yeah, and his underage wife, um, they didn't specify how old she was, but... Underage could teenager. be like... Yeah, it could be like 80, like 17, right? Yeah, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, which is still ridiculous for like a 49-year-old right. man. Yeah. Well, it's gross. ridiculous for like a 20-year-old man, but like especially ridiculous <laughs> for him. Yes, but yeah, he convinced her and her two brothers to go shoot up a bunch of homes. It's not, it's hard to convince, like, it's probably a easy. A full-grown person. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. she's 15, she's got no, like, life experience, or like, you know, 15, 16, 17, she hasn't got the life experience to go, you're a nutcase. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's probably been brought up in this world, too, so she's just brainwashed to the max. Yeah, but probably preying on the weak. Yeah. So they killed two people and injured 13 others. They failed in their primary goal, which was killing Verlin. That could not um, have gone worse. Because he... <laughs> yeah. Uh, he moved his families out of the col colony to Nicaragua because um, he heard that Ervil was coming for him. Mm -hmm. So Ervil was arrested for masterminding the raid, but he was released due to lack of evidence. Yeah, because nobody talks, right? Right. Everyone's too scared. Yeah. So Noemi Zarati, who was the mother of two of Ervil's wives, was increasingly worried for her daughters and the violence that they were being forced to commit. So she threatened to leave and go to the police. On Ervil's orders, his 10th wife, Vonda White, drove Zarati into the desert and killed her. Uh, Noemi's body has never been found. Oh my god. All because she was just worried for her daughters. Well, he's married two fucking sisters. So, like, their kids would be cousins and brother and sister. Like, they'd be, like, half brother and sister and cousins. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Ew. <laughs> Ew. Sister cousin. <laughs> Ew. Sister wife. There's so many good Amish shows, isn't there, about, like, sister wife. Not Amish, oh, sorry. Um, Mormon shows, like... Yeah, where they do like reality TV of like, here's me and my six wives. <laughs> oh, I know. So gross. Yeah. I might watch something like that today. <laughs> do it. Warm Easy me up for TV. the football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this story will put you in the mood for that. Yep. Yep. So that same year, another of Ervil's followers, Dean Vest, prepared to leave the group. Ervil was already angry with Vest for refusing to sell a houseboat that he owned and the tithe and tithe half of the proceeds to the cult. 
So on Ervil's orders, his 10th wife, Vonda White, executed Dean in her kitchen. She was later convicted of the murder. Ervil told her that with, his mur- with this murder, she had ensured her presence in heaven. Or in prison for the rest of your shitty Probably life. Both. Mexican prison. Yeah. No thanks. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, in 1977, Ervil also ordered the death of his pregnant teenage daughter, Rebecca, who had made him angry after she had been separated from her young son and threatened to go to the police and tell them everything. Oh. A witness testified that her body was stuffed into the trunk of a car and Ervil drove it around town for the afternoon. When someone commented that the car was riding low, he casually remarked that it must be because of Rebecca. Oh, God. What a, he j- Doesn't he just sound like a gem of a human being? Just a fuck, like, just a fucking psycho. It's just like yeah. any, any tiny little thing, dead. Like, yep. I mean, I know I said- you were talking about last yeah, week. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, I wouldn't be that harsh of a dictator. <laughs> Not to your own family as well. No. And yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. My dictatorship is yet to come, so we'll see. Yeah. So, yeah, she got killed. And then when her mother, Ervil's first wife, Delphina, discovered that her daughter had been murdered on the orders of her husband, she strongly objected. Another <laughs> of her daughters, Lillian, warned her that if she did not settle down and accept the righteousness of Rebecca's death, she would also be marked for blood atonement. Believing that her son-in-law and daughter were preparing to murder her, Delphina and her youngest daughter snuck out of Lillian's house and fled to Mexico. So they must have been in Utah. Oh, good for them. Uh, Yeah. So Ervil still had his brother Verlin on his mind for a blood atonement. He still hasn't gotten that guy. (sighs) The thing is, they call it blood atonement. Like, you'd think that that meant, like, cut your finger, cut your arm off. Right. No, dead. Like... Just just a little blood here yeah, and there. Yeah, like, that sounds a bit like blood sacrifice or, I don't know. Right. Straight to death. Yep, you're dead. So, Ervil convinced Rena, his 18-year-old wife, so now she was 18, and his stepdaughter, Ramona Marston, to kill Rulon C. Allred, the leader of the Apostolist apostolistic united brethren one of the largest polygamous sects in the u.s so they were told to go kill him and then they were told to then go to his funeral where ervil's brother verlin would most likely come out of hiding for so this was all to lure verlin out of hiding cool he fucking wants him dead doesn't he yeah they were ordered to kill verlin and anyone who got in their way at the funeral The plan was abandoned when they arrived at the funeral and police were surrounding the area to protect the mourners. So they just scratched that. And Verlin has never been killed. (laughs) He made it through. Oh my gosh. Um, So, on June 1st, 1979, LeBaron was apprehended by police in Mexico and was extradited to the U.S. where he was convicted of having ordered Allred's death. He was sentenced to life in prison in 1980. You, sir, may fuck off. Please. Please do. But while in prison, LeBaron wrote a 400-page Bible, in quotes. Oh, God, it's not a Bible if it's written on toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) 
if it's written in prison, it's not a Bible. (laughs) It was called the Book of the New Covenants, which included commandment to kill disobedient church members who were included in a hit list written by LeBaron. Some 20 copies were printed and distributed. He is. This was his life. Dude, get Uh, hobby. Yeah, so 20... I know. Dude, take up golf. It's so much more chill. (laughs) I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I don't even know what to say. So yeah, 20 copies were printed and distributed. Uh, Ervil was found dead in his cell a year into his being in prison. A note was found next to him saying, I've gone to meet my maker. So he possibly committed suicide. Hmm. I wonder how the Mormons feel about that. Um, About suicide? Yeah, probably not good, is it? No, it's a sin. Yeah, must be. It's a sin, obviously, to kill anyone, and that includes yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Including you. So, (laughs) yes. Okay. So that's... Makes sense. Yeah, it's... I, I just know this because if you, I, I don't know if it's true anymore, but if you committed suicide in Catholicism, you couldn't be buried in a Catholic cemetery because Aww. you had committed this grave sin of suicide. But I don't know if that's true anymore. Yeah. Well, now, like, so I'm not, not sure about Catholicism, but obviously, like, the Church of England and stuff yeah. allowed, like, gay vicars and like mm-hmm. openly gay vicars so yeah right. i think i think the church is starting to realize that they need to pull that stick out of their ass if they want to carry on <laughs> they gotta make some changes yeah uh even though he died in 1981 hits by Irville's followers continued to happen oh my god uh three of these hits were carried out sim- sim- simultaneously <laughs> on June 27th, 1988, so seven years after his death, yeah. at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Dwayne Chenoweth, a grandson of LeBaron, and his eight-year-old daughter were shot and killed while running errands. Eddie what? Marston, one of LeBaron's former thugs, was killed in the same manner, and Mark Chenoweth, a father of six and grandson of LeBaron, was shot multiple times in his office in Houston, Texas. And I believe that these people were on his hit list. An eight-year-old 400-page hit list. I know. He is it's a real like the, piece of shit. They would just rampage, though. Like, they didn't care who they hit. As long as they got the right person, they didn't care who else they got. Yeah, they're not exactly and fucking they subtle, And they thought they were sending these people to heaven. Yeah. Ugh. So, of the seven killers involved in the infamous four o'clock murders, five were found guilty of murder. One, Cynthia LeBaron, testified against her siblings at trial and was therefore granted immunity and sent home. The final suspect, Jacqueline LeBaron, is still at large and could be living in Mexico or Belgium, according to the FBI. Oh my gosh. It has been estimated... Yeah. It has been estimated that upwards of 25 people were killed as a result of LeBaron's prison cell orders. Many of his family members and other ex-members of the group still remain in hiding for fear of retribution from LeBaron's remaining followers. So yeah, that's the story of Ervil LeBaron and his killer cult. Wow. I mean, he's fucking dead. Give it up. Yeah. 
<laughs> right. Chill. <laughs> Surely it's chill time. Now. Surely it's time to go. Do you know right. what? I don't think it's probably worth ruining the rest of my life. Well, even though you say that, he had 50 children. There had to at least yeah. been at least two that were like him and yeah. wanted to carry on his name and his legacy. Yeah, I mean, I that's, that. that's pretty good odds, you know, if it's 50. Right. It's got to be one that's crazy. Yeah. You still do what you want. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Out of 50 people in a room, one of them's going to be a nutter. <laughs> yes. It's a safe bet. <laughs> do you ever do that when you do you ever do that when you're in a room full I do this where I'm in a room full of people and I'm like you think of statistics like kind of morbid statistics. Yeah. And you think like who would that be? Yeah, I do. Although I haven't been in a room with a lot of people for a long time. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. I will say there's a guy at my work. He doesn't work with me. I just see him around because like we work in a co-working mm. space. So basically, like, people just rent out desks in this, like, fancy office. Okay. Um, yeah. And he just looks like a fucking school shooter. He looks like any second he's oh, going to no. flip out and, like, he's gonna stab, stab everyone in there. Like, yeah. yeah. He's always drinking an energy drink, which is just a bad sign. Like, <laughs> he oh, looks man. really tired. I'm like, you've been up all night plotting our demise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Maybe sure he's a really offer nice guy. Him, like, a hot <laughs> cup of tea or something. You would. You're charitable. I'm not going anywhere near that guy. <laughs> I don't think I would either. I don't talk to people. No, I don't just he... randomly talk to people. He really scares me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Maybe don't so... talk to him. No. Never. Mate, I don't talk to people who I think look nice. Let alone like that guy. <laughs> Same. Sorry. <laughs> So my case this week, I was going to do like a children of God case, but there's okay. just so many, like all the accounts are just from like people who have escaped. And there's so many that I found like, I thought it would just be so hard to like get them all together. And that's similar to my story. There's just, yeah. there's, they, they don't fully know how many people have killed people or who was it's, guilty or it's told by the survivors so it's yeah right it, was, it would exactly. have been hard to like curate all of them together um and plus yeah. in england is quite sparse on the old cults anyway but this week i got a recommendation from um a friend called dylan and he said oh did you hear about that like that like witchcraft murder I was like, no. <laughs> so uh, anyway, he sent me a link um, and I've decided to do this one this week. And I know it's not like strictly Sweet. cults, but it's like old witchcraft, which is quite like interesting. So that's culty. Yeah. It's our podcast. Yeah. What are people going to do? Like, <laughs> right. So, Punch us? No. This is this is what you're getting. All right. So <laughs> somebody's this... going to send out a blood atonement for us for getting it wrong. <laughs> Oh, come at me, bro. I've been in the house for like <laughs> two years. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. So uh, this is called The Murder of Charles Walton. Charles Walton was okay. born on the 12th of May, 1870 to Charles and Emma Walton. He was a farmer who'd lived in the same town all his life. And that was the town of Quinton. So Quinton is in the Stratford-on-Avon district of Warwickshire, which is in the Midlands in England. Okay. Um. And it's uh, Stratford-on-Avon is where Shakespeare's from. 
So give you a bit of context. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So Walton had lived in, in his cottage since 1914. Unfortunately, his wife had died on the 9th of, of, the 9th of December 1927. Earlier in his life, he'd adopted his niece, Edith, when her mother died when she was three years old. And then his when his wife passed away, he just lived with Edith, his niece, until she was 33. So they lived together, like, happily this whole time. Um, Edith's father was still alive and lived in England, but Edith and Charles were really close, so she just stayed with him. Um, Charles was well-liked in the village, although he was an unusual character, it was said that birds would flock to be fed from his hands and he had the ability okay. to tame wild dogs with his voice. This is like okay. middle of England people gossiping <laughs> like craziness. Um, he probably just loved animals, it sounds like. My dad right? had my dad had a habit of like, my dad like tamed a robin to like eat out of his hand. Like, Aww. I think it's just an old man thing to do. They just like birds. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> However, some villagers thought he might have been involved with witchcraft because of his strange knowledge and abilities. So okay. he, he had arthritis and he walked with a stick, but he but he tried to work whenever he could and would sometimes pick up casual jobs from the local farmers. One of these was called Alfred Potter, who owned a farm called The Furs. Alfred Potter was 40 years old and managed The Furs for L.L. Potter and Company, which was, which was owned by his father. So... On the 14th of February, 1945, um, Charles is 73 and he left home with a pitchfork and a bill hook. So I had to look up what that was. And it's a knife that's got a wooden handle and it's uh, okay. an eight inch long curved blade. And one one Whoa. side. Yeah. So the, the, the curved side is sharp and then the outer side is blunt. And it's basically used for like trimming hedges and branches. So it's okay. almost like a scythe, really, uh, but a small one. Yeah, like what the what, what is it? Death the grim, carries the grim or reaper. Something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. So he left his he left his money at home that day as well. Uh. People reported seeing him walking through the churchyard between nine a.m. and nine thirty a.m. That day he was working slashing the hedges in a field on the slopes of Meon Hill. Um. For Alfred okay. Potter. Alfred Potter. So. Okay. Edith was at her day job as a printer's assembler at the Royal Society of Arts. She was expecting her uncle back about 4pm, but when she came home at 6pm, he wasn't there. She knew he wasn't the type of person to just like nip to the pub or see a friend, so she became worried. She went to see another local farm worker called Harry Beasley, who lived nearby to see if he knew where Charles was. He hadn't seen him, but he knew that he was working for Alfred, so they went to see Alfred at the Furs. Um, Potter told them that he'd seen Charles earlier that day slashing the hedges. So they went to the hill where he was working and they saw his body near the hedgerow. Hmm. Charles had been beaten over the head with his own stick. His had his, he had his neck cut open with the bill hook, like the scythe thing. And a pitchfork had been driven into his neck with one prong either side and one in the middle. Whoa. Pinning him to the ground. Somebody was pissed off. Uh-huh. So the handle of the pitchfork was then wedged under the branch of a hedge to keep it in place. He'd also... Shit. Yeah, this is fucked up. So he also had the slash hook 
embedded in his, in his neck. A postmortem found that Walton's trachea had been cut and that he had bruising to his chest and several broken ribs. Walton also had defensive wounds. He had a cut on his left hand and, and bruises on the back of his right hand and forearm. He'd also been hit over the head with his own walking stick, and was, which was found three and a half yards from his body with blood and hair on it. The time of death was deemed to be between 1 and 2 p.m. Charles's shirt had been opened when they, when they found him and his trousers were undone to the fly. Witchcraft was suspected, as it was reported there was a large Why? cross carved into his chest. Well, I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> so there was like, not tradition, but like there was a belief that when someone thought that there'd been a spell cast on them, to break the spell, yeah. they had to murder the witch that had done it and carve a cross okay. into their body to break the curse. Oh. Um, so in addition to this, Meon Hill, the furthest of the Cotswold Mounds, where he was working, has been surrounded by strange tales for many centuries concerning devils and ancient hauntings. One legend from the 8th century says that the devil kicked a boulder from the top of the hill, intending to smash the re recently built Evesham Abbey. The legend says that his angry deed was thwarted by the locals' prayers and the stone instead fell on Cleve Hill outside Cheltenham. So people there carved the stone into a shape of a cross to rid it of the devil's touch. Another version of the tale says that the devil threw a large clod of earth to smother the newly built abbey. However, the Bishop of Worcester saw the devil with the with the power of sorry, slay the devil with the power of prayer and altered his aim. In this, in I this love stories like that. It's stupid, like, like it's so stupid. So, but back then they just believed it because it was like, oh, the, the devil threw some dirt. And how did that hill get there? The de well, the devil right. kicked him up. Do you not think it was just sort of like tectonic like movement or I don't know right. <laughs> just normal land movements devil kicked it <laughs> uh, so in this version the clod fell short of its target and formed me on hill so mysterious black dogs have also been sighted in the area on many occasions this is love it this is an important detail later <laughs> okay so uh, Edith started screaming and was overcome with grief when she saw her uncle Harry Beasley Aww tried to keep her away from the body and comforted her. Alfred Potter stood guard over the murder scene until the police arrived and Edith was taken away. At the scene, Alfred was interviewed. He stated that he had been at the farm for about five years and had known Charles all that time. He said he had employed him on a casual basis for the last nine months and that he only worked when the weather was good and would trim the hedges. He had worked his way through all of them and the one he was working on that day was the last one. Alfred Potter said that he had been in the College Arms pub with Joseph Stanley, another farmer, until midday that day. He then headed to the fields and saw Charles working. When police arrived, they noted that Potter seemed very upset. He was shivering and complained of being cold. Looking back, this is a police officer speaking, looking back, I think, okay. that, I think that Potter appeared more worried than one should have expected him to be. After all, he was used to slaughtering animals and shouldn't have been so shaken up by the gore. What? Potter's, yeah, I don't know if that really like stands, but um, no. Potter said Being he, a man. Yeah, I mean that's pretty savage. Um, right. They also found it strange that Potter said he was going to go home before the Stratford police turned up. 
So they had like the local policeman there and then he was like, the, we're bringing in okay. the big guns. And he was like, well, I'm off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, see you later. Noped out of there. Yeah. Um, police said, his complaint of feeling cold, I considered a strange excuse from someone who was used to attending animals at all hours and in all kinds of weather, especially as the murdered man was his own employee and had been murdered on his land. So they were like, why are you fucking off? Right. On the 17th of February, Alfred Potter was interviewed for a second time. He stated that Charles had usually worked about four days a week, but never in wet weather. And he paid him 18 pence per hour, usually at the end of each fortnight. Um, he said that he left it to Charles to say how many hours he'd worked. And the interview got the imp the interviewer got the impression that Alfred was implying that Charles was sometimes paid for hours that he hadn't actually worked. But okay, when so he's just being an asshole. Uh, yeah, he's kind of saying like, I think he's fiddling his timesheets, is what he's saying. Right. But Even so the police he's dead. Yeah. So the police decided to look into that. He's a seventy-four-year-old man as well. Like, you really think he's fleecing right. you? Like, yeah. So the police looked into that because they were like, mm, let's see. So when they looked into it, they saw Potter was actually claiming money from his father's company that he stated Charles had worked, which he hadn't. And then he was just po pocketing the extra money. Oh. So he tried to like say, what a yeah, douche. He, he's like faking the hours. But when they looked at how much he paid him, like, and how much he'd taken right. out of the company, they were like, oh, there's a bit of, bit of a discrepancy here. So. Right. Potter Good state, work. Yeah. Um, Potter stated on that day of, that on the day of the murder, he'd gone across a, a field to see, to feed some sheep and calves. When he reached the field, it was 12.20 p.m. And he then saw Charles Walton working with his sleeves rolled up. He added that he would have gone over to see him, but there was a cow in a ditch that needed some help. He went straight home and arrived there at 12.40. Then he went to attend the cow. However, it later became clear that the cow had drowned in the ditch on the 13th of February, the day before the murder. Okay. And it wasn't removed until 3.30 p.m. on the 14th of February, almost three hours after Potter had claimed he had gone to attend it. So he's giving himself a false alibi. Okay. Um, PC Lomanzi. Yeah, he's a fucking liar. Uh, PC Lomanzi, the local policeman who knew Alfred and his wife Lillian, was asked to stay close to them to see what they might let slip. Detectives began interviewing the Italian World War II prisoners of war held at Long Marsden. Prisoners were apparently able to roam the area at will, although there was a schedule for work days and free days, no record was kept of the movement of their movements. So on the afternoon okay. of the on the afternoon of the murder, it was found that some prisoners had gone to Stratford to see a play and some had visited the cinema. However, no evidence surfaced that the Itali and the Italians were pretty much cleared of suspicion. Sounds like okay. an okay place to be if you're a prisoner of war, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't think it you would have been nice uh prisoner of war handlings. Alright, lads, just pop to the cinema if you like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, have a nice day out. But Italians were kind of forced to be opposing uh, sides. They they were kind of forced to be Nazis. So yeah. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. And I guess like, I think they just, well, they're not going anywhere, are they? Like, where are they going to go? Right. They exactly. probably don't speak the language. They're probably young guys too. Yeah. They were just like, guess I have to be part of this war now. Yeah. So yeah, they, anyway, they didn't. Like, the police were pretty sure they didn't do anything. None of them did it. 
Yeah. Um, So on the 20th of February, the police were still hoping to take fingerprints from the murder weapons. It was then that Alfred Potter said that he had touched the handle of the slash hook and possibly the pitchfork. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I've definitely touched. Oh, oh no, now my prints are all over it. Oh, yeah. Forensics are not going (laughs) to... I know what you're referring to. You're referring to when Mark touches a sausage in Peep Show. <laughs> and he's like, oh no, my fingerprints oh, are all over it. Oh no, my prints are all over it now. I guess you can't take it to forensics. <laughs> a sausage. sausage. <laughs> uh, if you haven't watched Peep Show, go and do it immediately. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... So when he first came across the body, although he claimed he had already mentioned this to the police... Um, he said he touched the weapons because Harry Beasley said, you better have a look to make sure he's gone. Alfred's wife was what? very, yeah, Alfred's voice was very annoyed at this. <laughs> Alfred's voice. Alfred's wife. <laughs> Fuck's sake. <laughs> um, Alfred's, Alfred's wife was very annoyed at this revelation, saying the police were bound to suspect him if his prints were on the murder weapon. Harry denied he ever said, you'd better have a look. And he never saw Alfred okay. touching the weapons. There were subsequently no prints found on the weapons. Okay. So he there was no need to say that, basically. He, I think he panicked that there might be prints. Um, right. Alfred, however, was convinced the murderer was an Italian, telling the police the murder was the work of a fascist from the camp. A short time later, a serviceman came to the door and asked for Alfred, who was in the yard, The police recorded that when Potter came in, he said, that soldier has just told me that the military police at the camp have caught an Italian coming out with a suit of clothes and detained him and sent him to civil police. They've taken him away with them. Then Potter and his wife were ecstatic at this news. So I guess the implication being he's robbed robbed Charles and bought a new suit with it. Right, Um, right. But then at the beginning That's of the such story, such a cheap shot to be like, "Oh, it's it's the foreigners; they're doing it." Yeah, but remember that They've guy last it. week? Like, remember that guy the other week with like the gypsies or like the travelers? Yeah, You're like yeah, the travelers right. did it. Like, just find yeah. a minority and blame them. Right. <laughs> yes. It's so cheap. Yeah. Um. So local folklore held that phantom black dogs roamed the area of the hill and were a harbinger of death. It was claimed that soon after Walton's murder, a black dog was found hanging from a tree close to the murder scene. Um, one of the in- I know. One of the inspectors called Fabian wrote that he encountered a black dog while walking at dusk on Meon Hill. The story was that the dog ran past him and shortly afterwards he met a local boy walking in the same direction. He asked the boy if he was looking for his dog. But when Fabian mentioned, mentioned the animal's colour, the boy turned deathly pale and fled in the opposite direction. Okay. So... They're shitted up about black ghost dogs. Um, Yeah, black ghost dogs. (laughs) In the end, Robert Fabian, uh, like the main inspector, concluded that Alfred Potter was very likely the killer of Charles Walton. He wrote... Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, who the fuck else is it going to be? He wrote that Potter was unkempt and on the surface dull-witted, although I'm convinced he is far from that. Indeed, Fabian believed that Potter was a man of considerable strength and and an extremely cunning individual. So this wasn't the only strange murder connected to witchcraft in the area. Hmm. Anne Tennant was an 80-year-old resident of Long Compton, 15 miles from Lower Quinton, where Charles lived. 
On the 15th of September, 1875, about 8pm, Anne left her house to buy a loaf of bread. On her way back, she met some farmers returning home from harvesting in the fields. One of the group, James Hayward, had known Anne's family for years. Hayward was simple-minded and seen as the village idiot. He had been drinking cider that day and without warning, he attacked Anne Tennant with a pitchfork, stabbing her in the legs and head. A local Jeez. Yeah. A local farmer named Taylor heard the commotion and ran to Anne's aid. He restrained Hayward until the constable arrived. Anne was taken to her daughter's house but died of her injuries at around 11.15 that night. Aww. She's 80, so fucking yeah. hell. Uh, Hayward claimed that Anne was a witch and that there were other witches in the village whom he intended to deal with in the same way. So in this town, if they're a witch, you stab them with a pitchfork. Although committed to trial for murder, he was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity and spent the rest of his life in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. He's recorded as dying there. We should add Broadmoor to the bingo. Yeah, I know, right? It comes up so much. Dude, it's like the biggest insane asylum in England. (laughs) So everyone, if you're crazy, you'll go in there. Um, Yeah. So he died there at the age of 59. And the murder of Charles Walton is still unsolved. And that Mm. is the story of Charles Walton. And the witchcraft of Stratford, Stratford, Stratford Quinton, yeah. I think is the town. Yeah, I love those kinds of stories of witchcraft, which are just like I do because there's so many of those here too, especially oh, like Salem and know, all of that. During, yeah, Salem, Pilgrim times, and it's just like, have you ever been walking out at night in the woods and no, completely have creeped you? out, and you hear a weird noise. <laughs> Just like if you're camping or like, yeah. you know, some something like that. Yeah. Like you're creeped out and you hear a weird noise or you think you see something that I feel like that was just 24-7 in pilgrim times because they didn't know what things were. They, uh, they were very like God-fearing. So they, they thought everything that came at them was some kind of... <laughs> ghost or witch or ghost dog whatever i think it's like uh also they didn't have like neuroscience to explain stuff like if i see something out of the corner of my eye i think my brain is designed to see something out the corner of my eye like yeah my brain is is designed to be on alert and you're just you're probably just tired yeah like yeah like or had too much coffee or whatever yeah, yeah. Right. like i'm seriously like ghosts aren't real i don't believe in the supernatural or any other mumbo jumbo <laughs> but yeah <laughs> carly just think, like carly like, loves all that shit man she's got like loads of books about witchcraft and like te- like so do i creepy tales like she loves it <laughs> it's so good it's just like you know the black dogs haunt the hill like because somebody saw one black dog running around one day (laughs) it just grew from there i know right it's mad um when we went we went to uh dartmoor like you know like the i think like so we went to like cornwall and then we went to like bodmin and there's like moors around there which is basically just fucking flat shitty fields of wild yeah. like grass and bracken and stuff it's kind of swampy right yeah like you can easily get lost on it and sink in it and die but there's mm. a um <laughs> a tale about 
the beast of bodmin which is just like yeah. supposed to be like a black dog leopard cat thing that like oh pe- people have said that when they're driving through the moors at night it like stops in the middle of the road and like hisses at them or like but it's huge oh. it's not like a cat it's like yeah yeah like a yeah big tiger thing so right. that's quite creepy and quite a cool yeah. story it, it's like out here you have bigfoot and now we have bigfoot. tv shows <laughs> Of people trying to find Bigfoot, like reality shows of people hunting Bigfoot. Oh and it's just like, God. it was probably just a, a bear. bear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I had to guess, I'd say bear. Oh my God. Yeah. I saw a story about a woman who was camping in Washington and got dragged out of her tent by a bear. <gasps> recently? Yeah. Really recently. No way. This That's is why, scary. Rachel, you don't go camping <laughs> in America. You don't go hiking you don't go camping because if it's not a crazy person that kills you, it's a fucking bear. Yeah, there's something out there. You take your life in your hands, woman. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, can we go to Joshua Tree? <laughs> uh, no, we're not camping. I have gone camping there. That was actually nice because it's like desert. Yeah. You know, there's no bears in the desert. There's coyotes, but... Snakes, though. Snakes, yeah. <laughs> tarantulas in fact i saw a tarantula when we went to the grand canyon did you yeah got a picture of it mate i'll send it to you remember that oh yeah yeah everyone was like gathered around it like taking photos yeah (laughs) never mind this grand canyon yeah i was like out of my way i'm from england (laughs) yeah (laughs) i might never come here again get out of the way (laughs) we don't we don't have these here we really don't <laughs> uh right i am so tired i don't know about you yeah me too it's right. both of our bedtimes now i'm going back for some i'm gonna have a little kippy nap naps <laughs> all right nice okay. well thanks for listening and thanks guys Alyssa, it was nice to talk to you this week yeah it was talk it was to nice you next to week to you. bye bye <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Transatlantic Crime this week. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at TransatCrimePod, Instagram at Transatlantic Crime, and on Facebook with Transatlantic Crime Podcast. Thanks, bye.